This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, May 23rd, episode 25, concerning the deaths of Edgar and Edward in Triptych. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and today we're going to do something a little different from the usual formula and look at one moment, or really two consecutive moments, as portrayed by three different sources. That moment is the death of King Edgar the Peaceful in 975, and then the murder of his teenage successor, Edward the Martyr, just three years later. Now, this actually is a kind of extension, a backwards extension in time, of the history we covered in our previous episode about Queen Emma and her son, Edward the Confessor. Edward, you may remember, was the son of Emma and King Athelred II. Athelred was the son of Edgar, and the stepbrother of today's Edward, Edward the Martyr. So we're moving back a generation in this dynastic story. Now, we've had a few rather research-intensive episodes recently, um, and to be totally honest, I'm a little wiped out, and it's summer vacation time, so today I'm going to let the sources do most of the heavy lifting themselves. Uh, This episode, uh, I'm not going to dig into the nitty-gritty about the various arguments of modern historians about what really happened in the late 970s during Edward the Martyr's brief reign. Um, Instead, I want to focus on how the story is told and what its basic elements are that are being deployed in these different styles of history writing. It would seem to make the most sense to start with the earliest source and progress chronologically so that you might see how the story develops over time. Um, But in this case, I think that would lead to a rather anticlimactic experience, as these three sources don't quite fit the expected pattern. Uh, So instead, I'm going to proceed in order of degrees of literariness or of aesthetic embellishment, um, which actually means we're going to start with the latest source, uh, which actually gives us the plainest narrative, then jump back to the earliest source um, and conclude with the one that's chronologically in the middle. So our three sources are, in the aforementioned order, the 13th century Melrose Chronicle, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, in this case with written entries put together not that long after the 10th century events being described. And finally, we'll conclude with William of Malmesbury's Gesta Regum Angelorum, or the History of the Kings of England, written in the 1120s. We'll start with the Melrose Chronicle, which gives us a very straightforward account of events using information, as we'll see, from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, as well as other later sources, like our friend Simeon of Durham, uh, and may even be getting its Anglo-Saxon Chronicle information via uh, the incorporation of that info into those later sources. Um, But if I want to avoid getting bogged down in historian speculations about how Edward died, I definitely want to avoid wading into the slough of despair that is the labor to trace what was taken from what recension of what particular source, uh, maybe some other time, but not on a lovely summer's day like today. Anyway, as I said before, 
I'm starting with the Melrose Chronicle because it gives us a nice, tidy overview uh, of at least one traditional account of what happened. If we started with the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, I think it would actually be a little harder to follow, um, as we'll see. We've seen the Melrose Chronicle before. It was the source for most of our Simon de Montfort episodes from a while back. For its coverage of Anglo-Saxon England, uh, which tends to be a bit more lightly sketched out than Melrose's history of more recent and regionally specific events, uh, for this period, the Chronicle follows a fairly regular annal format, uh, recording major events in a year-by-year list. And so that's what we're about to hear. One quick pronunciation note, there's a place name that's going to occur in all three sources that we'll hear today. Doing my due diligence, I scoured the internet for examples of how to say this place, uh, and what I learned was that apparently, as I discerned from a couple of different lengthy comment threads, not even the locals agree on any one standard pronunciation. So the town is C-A-L-N-E in Wilshire. I've seen people attesting that they are lifelong local residents, each offering up radically different variants from Khan to Khan to Kolna to Kalni to Karn and Karni, and there seem to be arcane British class issues involved in these pronunciations, so what do you do? Well, frankly, such pure confusion is kind of liberating, because whatever I say, I can rest assured that someone will think I got it right, and someone else, uh, or many someones else, will think I got it wrong. Uh, If any listeners want to add their own two cents, or pence, to the debate, uh, you can tweet me, at mdtpodcast. At any rate, I'll take a middle road and say, Kalna, with a little hint of an L and a bit of a choked-off E there. All right, here is the run of years from 975 to 978 from the Melrose Chronicle, as translated by Joseph Stevenson. Anno Domine, 975. The peace-loving King Edgar, the monarch of the English realm, the flower and the honor of its kings, no less remarkable among the English than was Romulus among the Romans, Cyrus among the Persians, Alexander among the Macedonians, Charles the Great among the Franks, or Arthur among the Britons. After having done all that it became a prince to do, departed from this life on the 8th of the Ides of July, in the thirty-second year of his age, and left Edward, afterwards king and martyr, the heir of his kingdom and his virtues. His body was carried to Glastonbury, and there buried in a kingly manner. During his lifetime he had assembled three thousand six hundred stout ships, and each year, after Easter, it was his custom to collect one thousand two hundred on the eastern coast of the island, as many on the western, and as many on the southern. He then used to sail towards the west in the eastern fleet, and having dismissed it, he then went northwards with the western squadron, which, having been sent homewards, he then returned in the northern to the eastern fleet. By this arrangement, he sailed round the whole island every summer, and his object in doing this was to defend his kingdom against internal disturbances and to exercise his men in warlike occupations. During the time of winter and spring, It was his wont to travel throughout all the provinces of England, 
and diligently to investigate how the laws and statutes which had been decreed were observed by his chief men, lest the poor should be wrongfully oppressed and their suits prejudged by their stronger neighbors. In the former of these customs he showed himself an encourager of fortitude, in the other of justice, and in both he exhibited his regard for the interests of the state and the kingdom. This caused fear everywhere to his enemies, and increased the love which was borne to him by all his subjects. The whole condition of the kingdom was disturbed by his decease, and after the peaceful time of rejoicing which had extended throughout the whole of his reign, distress began to spring up everywhere. There was a great dispute about the thrusting of the monks from the monasteries and the choice of a king, but at last, by the instrumentality of the archbishops Dunstan and Oswald, and other Catholic men who resisted the opposition made against the monks, they were able firmly to retain their possessions. Edward the Atheling was consecrated king, as his father had directed, and for the time his brother, Athelred, was passed by. A comet appeared this autumn. Anno Domini 976, there is nothing recorded in the chronicle for this year. Anno Domini 977, a very great synod was held in East Anglia, at a town called Kierling. Afterwards, while another synod was sitting at Calna, the elders of the whole of England who were there assembled, with the exception of St. Dunstan, fell from the upper chamber. Some of them were killed, and some of them escaped the peril of death with difficulty. Anno Domini 978. Edward, King of England, was secretly stabbed with a dagger by the order of his stepmother, Queen Althrith, at a place called Corvesgate, and so was unjustly slain by his own people. He was buried at Wareham, in a fashion unbecoming a king. His brother Athelred, the illustrious Atheling, of elegant manners, a beautiful countenance, and comely presence, was consecrated king at Kingston, after the festival of Easter, upon Sunday the 18th of the Calends of May, by the holy archbishops Dunstan and Oswald, and ten bishops. He held the kingdom for thirty-eight years, in many calamities, and this on account of the murder of his brother, whom his mother had wickedly slain. The blessed Dunstan had openly prophesied, for he was full of the spirit of prophecy, that these troubles would happen to him in his kingdom using these words. Inasmuch as thou hast aspired to the kingdom by the death of thy brother, whom thy mother ignominiously slew, therefore hear thou the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, the sword shall not depart from thy house, but shall rage against thee all the days of thy life, and shall slay thy seed until thy kingdom shall be transferred into another kingdom, the service and language of which the nation over which thou rulest knoweth not. Nor shall thy sin, nor the sin of thy mother, nor the sins of the men who entered with thee into this wicked counsel be expiated save by a long punishment. Therefore, after this, there appeared over the whole of England, at midnight, a cloud, at one time like blood, at another time like fire, and afterwards it separated itself into various rays, and assumed diverse colors, and then disappeared altogether about the dawn of day.
So, some very typical annal writing from the Melrose Chronicle. You have some of the classic features, capsule portraits of leading figures illustrated with examples of representative behavior, linking disaster to strife, sinfulness, or other causes of divine punishment, and related to that, a particular fixation on omens and signs, with a bit of all-too-accurate prophecy thrown in for good measure. Some brief comments on the content. Uh, we get quite a rosy picture of Edgar the Peaceful here. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll take one more step backwards on the dynastic timeline and put some shading on that picture of Edgar. As for the event that occurs at Kalna, um, just what it is is rather obscurely described here, but rather than explain it myself, I'll let our next two sources fill in some of the details. Lastly, we have the murder of Edward at the instigation of his stepmother, Alfthrith, who is the mother of Edgar's overlooked heir, Athelrad. Um, just take note of the major players here for future comparison. Here, the murder is the act of a jealous stepmother, a crime for which her own son is punished with a troubled reign in a sins-of-the-fathers kind of way. Now for our next source, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. As I mentioned way back when we stopped by the Chronicle in Episode 6, uh, while we can reasonably speak of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as a text, um, what we're talking about is really a collection of different chronicles that each branch off at different points from some shared starting point. This matters a bit for today, uh, because in the Chronicle's coverage of the years 975 to 979, um, we have some key differences between different manuscripts. In fact, we have to extend the year to 979, uh, because that's the year one of these manuscripts, uh, Manuscript E, also known as the Peterborough Chronicle, uh, that's the year it says Edward was murdered, though all of the others, and modern historians, uh, agree that 978 should be the correct year. The special thing about the entries on the deaths of Edgar and Edward in the Chronicle manuscripts is that some copies preserve poetical eulogies to these kings in Old English verse. In fact, there are two different poems honoring Edgar, uh, recorded in two different branches of the manuscript tradition. For the death of Edgar, we'll hear, in translation of course, the poem from Manuscript A, also called the Parker Manuscript, um, and this poem also appears in the B and C manuscripts. This poem is in fairly classic Anglo-Saxon alliterative verse, basically the same alliterating half-lines that you find in Beowulf. Our translation by E.E.C. Gom only captures a bit of the formal qualities. Um, only echoes of the alliteration come through here and there, but you'll get a huge sampling of this form of poetry's use of stock epithets. I mean, why describe someone with one phrase when you can chain together two or three and keep the beat going? The other poem on the death of Edgar shows up in the D and E manuscripts and is a fair bit shorter and much less regular in its uh, verse form. In Old English and on the page where you can better see the structure of the poems, a comparison between the two is quite interesting. In translation and as audio, uh, not so much, uh, so I'm going to skip the short poem. After the death of Edgar, we have a few prose entries, um, in this case as given in Manuscript C, covering the years 976 and 977, uh, and I'll be skipping here another short poem that only appears in Manuscript D, about the persecution of monasteries by the aldermen of the realm at the start of Edward's reign. Then we get to a slightly clearer account of what happened at Kalna uh, in 978, 
from the Peterborough Chronicle, and then two contrasting entries, the Parker Manuscript's very brief prose notice of the death of Edward, and then a longer poem on the death of Edward, uh, similar in style to the shorter poem on Edgar, which also comes from the D and E branch of manuscripts. Finally, we close with Manuscript C's entry for 979, which covers the bloody cloud we heard about at the end of the Melrose Chronicle. All right, here we go, starting with the death of Edgar from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Nine seventy five from Manuscript A. Here ended Edgar, Angles King, the joys of earth, chose him another light, beauteous and winsome, and forsook this frail, this transitory life. The sons of men name everywhere that month, dwellers on earth in this native land, those who erewhile in the art of numbers were rightly taught, July month, when the young Edgar warrior's ring-giver, on the eighth day departed from life, whence his son succeeded to the kingdom, a child unwaxen, lord of earls, whose name was Edward. And ten nights before him a glorious hero departed from Britain through nature's course, as the good bishop, whose name was Kenaward, was then amongst the merchants, as I have heard, widely and everywhere, the glory of the Lord laid low on earth. Many were expelled of God's learned servants, that was a great grief to him who in his breast bore a burning love of the Creator in his mind. Then the doer of wonders was too greatly despised, Lord of victory, ruler of the heavens. Then men broke his laws, and then too was driven the warrior bold of mood, Oslak, from the land, over the rolling waves, or the bath of the gannet, or the tumult of the waters, over the whale's domain, the hoary-haired hero, wise and eloquent, of home bereft, and then appeared aloft in the heavens a star in the firmament, which high-souled and mind-wise men, learned in science, wise soothsayers, widely call by name a comet. Throughout the nation was the Lord's vengeance widely known, a famine o'er the land, that, again the heaven's guardian, Lord of angels, amended, gave bliss again to every isle-dweller through the earth's increase. 976 from Manuscript C. Here in this year was the great famine amongst the English nation. 977 from Manuscript C. Here after Easter was the great council at Kirtlington, and there died Bishop Seedman by a sudden death on 2nd of the Calends of May. He was bishop in Devonshire, and he desired that his body's resting place should be at Crediton at his episcopal seat. Then bad King Edward and Archbishop Dunstan that he should be born to St. Mary's Monastery, which is at Abingdon, and so it was done, and he is also worthily buried on the north side in St. Paul's Chapel. 978 from Manuscript E. Here in this year all the chief Wheaton of the English nation fell at Calne from an upper chamber, save only the holy Archbishop Dunstan, who stood up on a beam, and some there were sorely hurt, and others did not escape it with life.
978 from Manuscript A. Here was King Edward slain. In the same year, Athelred Atheling, his brother, succeeded to the kingdom. 979 from Manuscript E. Here was King Edward slain at eventide at Corfsgate on the 15th of the Calends of April and buried at Wareham without any kingly honors. No worse deed was done amidst the English race than this was since they first sought Britain land. Men murdered him, but God honored him. He was in life an earthly king. He is now after death a heavenly saint. Him would not avenge his earthly kinsmen, but him has his heavenly father greatly avenged. The earthly murderers would blot out his memory on earth, but the lofty avenger has his memory in the heavens and on the earth spread abroad. They who erewhile to his living body would not bow down, humbly now on knees bend to his dead bones. Now we may understand that men's wisdom and devices and their counsels are like naught against God's purpose. And here Athelrad succeeded to the kingdom, and very quickly after that, with great joy of the Witan of the English race, he was consecrated king at Kingston. 979 from Manuscript C In this year was Athelrad consecrated king at Kingston on the Sunday, fourteen days after Easter, and at his consecration were two archbishops and ten suffragan bishops. The same year was seen a bloody cloud, oftentimes in the lightness of fire, and it was most apparent at midnight and was colored in various rays. Then when the day began to break, it glided away. So that's the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, giving us a poetic take on history. If you read the Chronicle, it can get rather dry and repetitive, um, but then it will surprise you with little jewels like this. And it's a reminder that the preservation of history in Anglo-Saxon culture, and many medieval cultures, was not even primarily the purview of writers of history, but rather of singers of history, and the memory of the oral tradition of shopes and bards and scalds and other performers was as significant a source as any old codex. And speaking of the information that's preserved, uh, did you notice who the earliest of our sources today said was responsible for Edward's murder? If you didn't, it's because it didn't really say. Uh, men murdered him, it says, and his kinsmen failed to avenge him. Does that implicate them? Hard to say, uh, but we're definitely lacking a scheming stepmother prominently put up on stage in this version. Unsurprisingly, uh, we also don't have that all-too-accurate prophecy of Dunstan uh, appearing in this early source, but we do have the drama of ominous comets and strange weather, and the description of the bloody cloud uh, is quite clearly carried over from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle into the Melrose Chronicle. But for real drama and gripping narrative, we have to go to our last, uh, though chronologically intermediate, source— William of Malmesbury's Gesta Regum Anglorum, or the Chronicle, or more accurately, the Deeds, of the Kings of England. We're going to be looking at William again next episode, so I'm actually going to save a more detailed introduction to him for then. 
Uh, right now, we're less interested in him than in the story he's telling. And let's dive right into it. Uh, here is William's history, starting from the death of Edgar, as translated by J.A. Giles. In the year of our Lord, 975, Edward the son of Edgar began to reign and enjoyed the sovereignty for three years and a half. Dunstan, in common consent with the other bishops, elevated him to the royal dignity, in opposition, as it is said, to the will of some of the nobility and of his stepmother, who was anxious to advance her son, Athelred, a child scarcely seven years of age, in order that herself might govern under color of his name. Then, from the increasing malice of men, the happiness of the kingdom was impaired. Then, too, comets were seen, which were asserted certainly to portend either pestilence to the inhabitants or a change in the government. Nor was it long ere there followed a scarcity of corn, famine among men, murrain among cattle, and an extraordinary accident at a royal town called Calna. For as soon as Edgar was dead, the secular canons who had been for some time expelled from their monasteries rekindled the former feuds, alleging that it was a great and serious disgrace for newcomers to drive the ancient inmates from their dwellings, that it could not be esteemed grateful to God who had granted them their ancient habitations, neither could it be so to any considerate man who might dread that injustice as likely to befall himself which he had seen overtake others. Hence they proceeded to clamor and rage and hasten to Dunstan, the principal people, as is the custom of the laity, exclaiming more especially that the injury which the canons had wrongfully suffered ought to be redressed by gentler measures. Moreover, one of them, Elpharius, with more than common audacity, had even overturned almost all the monasteries which that highly revered Athelwald, Bishop of Winchester, had built throughout Mercia. On this account, a full synod being convened, they first assembled at Winchester, what was the issue of the contest of that place, other writings declare, relating that the image of our Savior, that is, the crucifix, speaking decidedly, confounded the canons and their party. But men's minds being not yet at rest on the subject, a council was called at Calna, where, when all the senators of England, the king being absent on account of his youth, had assembled in an upper chamber, and the business was agitated with much animosity and debate, while the weapons of harsh reproach were directed against that firmest bulwark of the church, I mean Dunstan, but could not shake it, and men of every rank were earnestly defending their several sides of the question, the floor, with its beams and supporters, gave way suddenly and fell to the ground. All fell with it except Dunstan, who alone escaped unhurt by standing on a single rafter which retained its position. The rest were either killed or subjected to lasting infirmity. This miracle procured the archbishop peace on the score of the canons, all the English, both at that time and afterwards, yielding to his sentiments. Meanwhile, King Edward conducted himself with becoming affection to his infant brother and his stepmother, he retained only the name of king and gave them the power. Following the footsteps of his father's piety and giving both his attention and his heart to good counsel. The woman, however, with that hatred which a stepmother only can entertain, began to meditate a subtle stratagem 
in order that not even the title of king might be wanting to her child, and to lay a treacherous snare for her son-in-law, which she accomplished in the following manner. He was returning home, tired with the chase and gasping with thirst from the exercise, while his companions were following the dogs in different directions as it happened. When hearing that they dwelt in a neighboring mansion, the youth proceeded thither at full speed, unattended and unsuspecting, as he judged of others by his own feelings. On his arrival, alluring him to her with female blandishment, she made him lean forward, and after saluting him while he was eagerly drinking from the cup which had been presented, the dagger of an attendant pierced him through. Dreadfully wounded, with all his remaining strength, he clapped spurs to his horse in order to join his companions. When one foot slipping, he was dragged by the other through the trackless paths and recesses of the wood, while the streaming blood gave evidence of his death to his followers. Moreover, they then commanded him to be ingloriously interred at Wareham, envying him even holy ground when dead, as they had envied him his royal dignity while living. They now publicly manifested their extreme joy as if they had buried his memory with his body. But God's all-seeing eye was there, who ennobled the innocent victim by the glory of miracles. So much is human outweighed by heavenly judgment. For there lights were shown from above. There the lame walked. There the dumb resumed his faculty of speech. There every malady gave way to health. The fame of this pervading all England proclaimed the merits of the martyr. The murderess, excited by it, attempted a progress thither, and was already urging forward the horse she had mounted when she perceived the manifest anger of God. For the same creature which she had heretofore constantly ridden, and which used to outstrip the very wind in speed, now by command of God stood motionless. The attendants, both with whips and clamors, urged him forward that he might carry his noble mistress with his usual readiness, but their labor was in vain. They changed the horse, and the same circumstance recurred. Her obdurate heart, though late, perceived the meaning of the miracle. Wherefore, what she was not herself permitted to do, she suffered to be performed by another. For that Alpharius, whom I before blamed for destroying the monasteries, repenting of his rashness and being deeply distressed in mind, took up the sacred corpse from its unworthy burial place and paid it just and distinguished honors at Shaftesbury. He did not escape unpunished, however, for within a year afterwards he was eaten of the vermin which we call lice. Moreover, since a mind unregulated is a torment to itself, and a restless spirit endures its own peculiar punishment in this life, Althritha, declining from her regal pride, became extremely penitent, so that at Werewolf, for many years she clothed her pampered body in haircloth, slept at night upon the ground without a pillow, and mortified her flesh with every kind of penance. She was a beautiful woman, singularly faithful to her husband, but deserving punishment from the commission of so great a crime. It is believed, and commonly reported, that from her violence to Edward, the country for a long time after groaned under the yoke of barbarian servitude. At Shaftesbury truly shines a splendid proof of royal sanctity, for to his merit must it be attributed that there a numerous choir of women dedicated to God not only enlightened those parts with the blaze of their religion, but even reached the very heavens. There reside sacred virgins, wholly unconscious of contamination, 
there continent widows, ignorant of a second flame after the extinction of the first. In all whose manner, graceful modesty is so blended with chastened elegance that nothing can exceed it. Indeed, it is a matter of doubt which to applaud most, their assiduity in the service of God, or their affability in their converse with men. Hence, assent is justly given to those persons who say that the world, which has long tottered with the weight of its sins, is entirely supported by their prayers. So, at last, we have a full-fledged fairy tale evil stepmother. Though she doesn't quite get a Grimm's brother's comeuppance. No, she escapes death through a life of abject penitence. And William himself balances out her story of feminine treachery with fawning praise of holy women, women safely unconcerned with reproduction and worldly cares. But even William's account leaves some room for conspiratorial skepticism. He heaps blame on the old queen, but the entirely complicit behavior of Edward's hunting companions, who take his murder pretty well in stride, makes one rather suspicious that there's considerably more going on here than just maternal jealousy. Perhaps it's not surprising that, rather than trying to elaborate this story still further, the Melrose Chronicle streamlines it and cuts it back to just bare essentials. Uh, not quite as bare as those of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, of course, um, though it's hard to imagine how one could elaborate the narrative much more than William of Malmesbury does. Uh, he's my kind of medieval historian, the kind to never let a gruesome detail or tangential anecdote pass him by. Really, the only disappointment here is that William deprives us of our bloody cloud. Where's the bloody cloud? We get the comets, sure, but comets are humdrum. I might as well offer my theory about what this cloud is. Um, I'm pretty sure it's not a novel theory. Uh, in fact, it seems fairly obvious. Uh, I think the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle's description makes it clearest. So, quote, The same year was seen a bloody cloud, oftentimes in likeness of fire, and it was mostly apparent at midnight and was colored in various rays. Then when the day began to break, it glided away pulsating, multicolored, gauzy light in the late evening dark? I believe we have ourselves an aurora borealis, uh, which is an unusual but entirely possible sight in the English latitudes on rare occasions. Uh, I was able to see a very faint show of the northern lights in central Illinois about a decade ago, um, so it does happen. The lights I saw were very green and blue uh, with no hints of blood color, but all the same. Also, now is when someone can tell me that William does eventually plug the bloody cloud in there somewhere later on in his lengthy and digression-filled account of Athelred's reign, uh, and I just managed to overlook it somehow. But as I said, we'll be coming back to William of Malmesbury next episode as we look at some additional stories of the exploits, good and ill, of Edgar the Peaceful. But before we can move on, we have to wrap up old business we have an outstanding medieval mystery word to deal with, and that word was drast. D-R-A-S-T, drast. 
This is a Middle English word, which means dregs, or residue, or refuse, uh, or, in some instances, feces. It could work today, I think, as a kind of softened, euphemistic expletive. Drast! It slots into the same kind of role as crap, but I think it has a bit more sizzle than crap does. Drast comes from the Old English, derst, uh, so we can hear a little bit of phonetic mutation going on there with the relocation of the R sound. Um, and while drast did not really survive in English beyond the 16th century or so, its cousin, dross, is still with us. Uh, dross itself actually goes back to Old English um, practically unchanged. Uh, so the common root it shares with drast is buried uh, way back in Proto-Germanic times. A word drast is not at all related to is drastic. Uh, not etymologically, anyway, but perhaps spiritually. Drastic comes into English from ancient Greek drastikos, which itself derives from the verb meaning to do, and so drastikos is an adjective meaning having the power of doing, or less cumbersomely, uh, efficient or effective. But it comes originally into English in the late 17th century with a specific narrow usage. Uh, as with many classical importations from this time period, uh, it was a technical word, in this case in the field of medicine. And a drastic medicine, or just as a noun, a drastic, had the power to do one particular thing really effectively. It was a purgative. Uh, I like how the OED puts it. Drastic, of medicines, acting with force or violence, especially acting strongly upon the intestines. Woof. Last episode, we were talking about wormwood and absinthe, and medicinal absinthe is quite possibly the kind of drug that might have once been administered as a literally drastic treatment. Uh, and if I've accomplished anything in this lazy summer day episode, I just hope it's that I've bestowed on you a brand new mental picture for whenever you hear a politician calling for drastic measures to be taken. All right, I'm off. You can get in touch with me with your questions or comments or corrections or pronunciations of Kalna at Twitter, at MDT Podcast. Or if you want to say more than you can fit into 140 characters, you can leave a comment on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, where you can also find more information about this and other episodes. Or you can email me at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. We'll be back in early June with some shocking behavior on the part of King Edgar the Peaceable. Until then, keep your eyes out for comets and clouds, and thanks for listening. Whoa there, wait a second, we're not done yet. I recorded a whole podcast and forgot to include our next riddle. And this one is even from a new source of medieval riddles. So, here's your riddle to work on until next episode. Six eyes are mine, as many ears have I. Fingers and toes twice thirty do I bear. Of these, when forty from my flesh are torn, lo, then but twenty will remain to me. One more time. Six eyes are mine, as many ears have I. Fingers and toes twice thirty do I bear. Of these, when forty from my flesh are torn, lo, then but twenty will remain to me. All right. Now we're done. You are dismissed. <laughs>